since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I was tired of hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Stupid Cancer Show, Annie Goodman and Matthew Sachs. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with it. Because he has a lot of chip stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Monday, September 15th, and welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of Young Adult Cancer. I am your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And I'm your co-host, Annie Goodman, journalist and young adult breast cancer fighter, and we're your hosts for this stupid cancer show. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so... Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time entertaining listeners here on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listen to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight, Season 15 broadcast premieres. We're talking about disrupting medicine. We're kicking off Season 15 with a bang with Dr. Roni Zeiger, former Google Chief Health Strategist and co-founder at SmartPatients.com. Join us for an in-depth discussion about a very touchy subject for anyone, regardless of disease. Survivor Spotlight and Young Adult Ovarian Cancer Survivor, Tracy Maxwell, author of Being Single with Cancer and founder of Solo Survivors. I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at ChemoDeck, so send me your questions and feedback at any time using the hashtag SCRadio. All right, welcome back, guys. What up? Season 15. I can't believe I have to hang out with all of you again. I know. Crazy. I, I must have seen you all since July. I haven't seen you all since the afternoon in the office. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen you guys in like six weeks. I know, I know. That's true, we haven't yeah. seen any of you. You've been busy going to Yankee games. I have been. You and Derek jitterizing yourself. Yeah. How many Yankee games have you been to? I don't know. A lot. I've been to three away stadiums. Wow. Didn't you go as far as Ohio? Did I see you uh, in Cleveland? No, I was in Detroit. Right. But my brother lives in Michigan, so uh, it wasn't, like, that weird. So, But we did plan our trip around when the Yankees were playing in Detroit. So I went to Baltimore, which was still when the show was going on. That was when I met Derek Jeter and had my moment and my Facebook profile picture. And then I went to Fenway. And it was, like, the only game the Yankees won this season. It was awesome. <laughs> and it was very, you know, it was an amazing stadium, and it was super fun. And, and even I know that's a rivalry. Yes. 
and then, well done, Matt. <laughs> and then um, was at my brother's house for about two weeks. The, before the game, though, I saw Eminem and Rihanna in the Dirty D. Wow. Where Eminem wow. is from. Very nice. Yeah. Good for you. Were they just so hanging fun. out or were they? No, it was a, it was a monster tour. Ooh, cool. Yeah, so I got to see them in their, at least Eminem in his hometown, and then saw the Yankees lose again. So and then I saw them lose a couple more times in New York. So it's been fun. And, uh, yeah, and that was your summer vacation. That was pretty much my summer vacation. Well, half the month I was in Michigan. So right. that was uh, pretty cool. The only thing I hate about leaving New York City, mosquitoes, they're everywhere. Oh, we're kind of bug-ridden here. Not Manhattan. Well, there's like well, no there's, nature. <laughs> well, I know. At least the nature in your... Okay, fine. Like, whatever. We have cockroaches and things like that. But they don't bite you and then make you itch for two weeks. I guess so. Yeah. Well, so anyway. anyway. Summer Who's vacation. Next? Maureen and her um, Instagram foodie hunt. Right. Sure. I don't know that I had a very food-filled summer it vacation. It really wasn't. Last year, I did the barbecue challenge. Right. So... Yeah, there's a little bit, a little bit less of that. I have learned to play tour guide in Brooklyn, though. That's been my achievement for the summer. Right. I've had people visit. My, fa- my parents came in, visited Brooklyn for the first time, Matt went all the way from the Brooklyn Bridge to Coney Island. So we've seen a solid chunk. Sorry, Williamsburg, they didn't make it there. <laughs> um, I had friends in from Philly, from Denver. So yeah, learning to play hostess. And Mr. Kenny made a geographic transition this summer. I feel like that might have happened prior to the end of the show. Are you sure? You moved on June 1st, right? Yeah. Was it June 1st? Yeah. Oh, well, all right. Then since Kenny then, still lives in Brooklyn. I'm, I haven't been evicted. Yeah, I'm but still you be- paying my rent. But you become like a big social media. What is it? I love Crown Heights or something? Yeah, yeah. I started a neighborhood blog in which I retweet and try to fact find about things happening in my neighborhood. Um, I did, however, join the Young Nonprofit Professionals of New York City Volunteer Board as their partnership chair. I still don't really know what that means. <laughs> Hopefully they're going to tell me. But you were a Young Nonprofit of the... I was a Nonprofiteer of the Year for 2013, 13, but they haven't picked a new one until October. Oh. Coming. So my reign was like 18 months or something. You have to pass the TR at a special ceremony? Yeah, I think, I'm, I think I'm giving the award, which is fitting. Good for you. Yeah. Well, we had a fairly a banner summer um, here at Stupid Cancer. Lots of amazing events happening. I uh, had the privilege of going to L.A. for the Stand Up to Cancer uh, event, and apparently I was on television. You were. Because I was in, like, row two. Yeah. No, you were in a video. Yes, that's right. It was a video. That's where I saw you. I saw you in Suleika Gerard. You know, I went to this photo shoot, and they told me it was going to be, like, B-roll for some Mm -hmm. promotional stuff. I didn't know it was going to be, like, this front and center opening segment Matt's giant face it, to 20 million people. It was fast. It was, I know. You, I mean, you weren't off for like 20 minutes. No, it was really quick. It was quick. like a 15-second thing. I had people telling me that, you know, because uh, Dr. Sandra, our board chairman, and I were in the second row, that all the shots of the audience were like we were in them. You probably were. I just didn't notice that one. It was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. If I had a TV, I would have watched. <laughs> you don't have a TV? I do. I have Apple TV. Oh. I don't have cable. Like I went to well, bed early that That's night. like basic cable. Yeah. Yeah, they can't live stream it over like Netflix. Can they? they should. Yeah. They shouldn't have some kind of thing that pops up. Right. I, I suppose that would cost money. And then, yeah. But it was good. They raised $110 million that night for research that goes to the American 
ACR, American Association of Cancer Research. Mm-hmm. And it's good. They, they find a lot of genomic stuff. And I think the big noise that came out of uh, the last couple of months, I mentioned this in May, I went to ASCO, but we always complain that young adult cancer hasn't moved forward because there's no drugs for young adults with cancer. Well, guess what? After a few weeks after ASCO, there are now actually drugs for young adults for the first time in history. And wow. it's quite extraordinary. There are actual drugs now that specifically target young adult cancers and huge milestones. And we're at the forefront of some of those relationships now with the farmers trying to find access to young adults with specific cancers. It's, it's really a marvel of medicine. Um, but then Allie and I were in Allie Ward, our VP of programs. We were in Denver twice uh, for some reconnaissance heading up to CancerCon next year uh, in April, cancercon.org our international conference, um, the future of the OMG Summit, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of really amazing relationships. There's something called the Colorado Cancer Coalition that we give presentations to, and there's a bunch of hospitals and the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, City Council, the Mayor's Office. A lot of people are really excited that they are coming to, uh, we are coming to Denver. But that was pretty awesome. And, uh, oh, I guess on a personal note, my kids started school. Oh, my gosh. Like actual school. Like my children Whoa. are in school. Pre-K. So what do they learn in pre-K these days? Are they in like just basic astrophysics? or? What's <laughs> it's really like string theory, but with okay. alphabet blocks. Okay, cool. Yeah. Great. Kobe said, I did the best today. Had what? Rest time. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed rest time. Of snaps. <laughs> what's your favorite subject? Recess. <laughs> No, it's, it's really exciting to take them to school and drop them off. I mean, just like, you know, life. Like, it, it's incredible. They really mm-hmm. are doing an amazing job. So, in any case, that was really exciting. And um, I'm glad we had a great summer and we are back on the air now. Season 15, if you could believe it. Kenny, what's tonight's show? Like 319 uh, or something? Yeah, 319. 319 episodes to date. Oh, and an all-new Stupid Cancer Show website for all of our friends. Talk Brand about that. new. And thank you to Lagaya King for helping us out from uh, Stupid Cancer San Diego chapter. She is in New York City for the month, and she has basically ported and uploaded and moved everything over to the new website, and we thank her. Yes, exactly. So stupidcancershow.org, brand-new website. Mm-hmm. It's got pretty much nearly every episode ever it has, I think it has every it's episode. Done? Yeah, it's done. Wow. As far as I know. You could surf or, or at least SoundCloud has everything. If you go to soundcloud.com forward slash stupidcancershow.org, uh, you can find everything in existence. So this is the first time in history that every single episode of the show is in one place at one time online. It's epic with it brackets. It is brackets. It is double brackets. Anyway, we are back. It's a very exciting and a great show to kick off the season. And let's, uh, without further ado, get our show started. Tracy was diagnosed with granulosa cell ovarian cancer at age 36. Single, living alone, and far away from family, she was unsure how to navigate the rigors of surgery, chemo, doctor's appointments, massive medical bills, and the other challenges of cancer on her own. What she learned turned into a book, Being Single with Cancer. It was just released in time for Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Welcome, Tracy Maxwell. Hello, my darling. Hi, guys. How you doing? Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show. You are a, uh, I believe, returning customer. That is correct, right? You were on a couple I years ago. I think this is my third appearance, yeah. Someone get her a prize. Three times the charm. <laughs> I know. I'm psyched to be back. And I'm 
super duper psyched to welcome all of you guys to my hometown for CancerCon in April. I know. We are very excited. Denver is the place to be, apparently, next April. And uh, we are, I, I think you heard in the opening segment, the entire city is really excited that we're coming there and pretty much put off the welcome wagon for us. And, and, and uh, everyone wants to figure out how to get involved and what it takes and what this is all about and wrap their arms around us. And we're really thrilled that you are one of the anchors, and you've been one of the anchors in Denver for us for a very, very long time. I have. You know, we got a lot of great um, cancer organizations in Denver, and we are all super excited to have you guys coming to visit us. And we'll, we promise we'll have some fantastic weather for you. Can you promise that, really? I really can't, <laughs> April, but we will have some sunshine for you. I can probably promise sunshine. I can't promise that it won't snow, but I'll promise sunshine. Well, all right, well... I will accept your challenge. <laughs> and let's get like News Team 7 to raise the bar and donate if you're right or wrong. How's that? There you go. That sounds good. So I met you like ages and ages ago, pretty much right after your diagnosis, when I was just getting right. started with the world of young adult cancer. You were probably one of the first people I met in the wake of my deciding to join the crazy world of nonprofit charity in, in our space. Um, and uh, you actually were working for uh, an organization called Campus Speak, if I'm not correct, right? That's right. That's right. And I still am in a different uh, format. I, you know, I was on staff at the time. We were a brand-new company, and now I'm a speaker for Campus Speak. What goes around, that's amazing. Full circle, right? That's right. Full circle. <laughs> so let's talk about your life leading up to your diagnosis. Your diagnosis was 36 in 2006. So what was your life like? I would assume you were fabulous and productive and amazing, and then all of a sudden, bam, ovarian cancer, right? Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. I had been in Denver about seven years when I was diagnosed. I was CEO of this small company, as you mentioned, Campus Speak, at the time of my diagnosis. I'd been CEO. I'd worked there for a long time, and I'd been CEO for about a year. And I was a river guide in Colorado in the summers. I was guiding multi-day trips on the Colorado River and the Gunnison River in canoes, and I was loving my life. You know, I was very active and involved and a, and a volunteer and on several boards and, and really involved with the fraternity and sorority community that I've been part of for, for a really long time, um, and, and then I was diagnosed in May of 2006. And how did that happen? Did you feel cramps and pains? Did you go to your primary care, your OBGYN? Yeah, I had really serious pain on New Year's Day. So it was that, you know, woke up on New Year's Day not feeling well. A lot of people wake up on New Year's Day not feeling well. But I hadn't really had much to drink the night before. I'd gone to a friend's house for a fondue, and we had maybe a glass of champagne at midnight. So I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. I figured I was just coming down with the flu. But I had this serious pain all day long, and it just didn't really go away. It faded a little bit toward the night, and I went to sleep. And then I woke up at 3 in the morning, and it was back. So I called a friend to take me to the ER. And, you know, at the ER, they did all kinds of tests, and they said, oh, you had a cyst on your right ovary, and it burst. This is really common. It's not a big deal. It's nothing to worry about. But you might want to follow up with your gynecologist. So I did, luckily, and we watched for several months, and the cyst came back, and it persisted. And so finally she said, you know, you need to have surgery to take it out. She wasn't worried at all when she went in for the surgery, and then – the pathology came back the next day, and I got that call to come in, and I knew that wasn't going to be good news. So 
technically, it didn't take you 11 months to get diagnosed, but you did have to go through some challenges navigating the system to get uh, taken seriously. Yeah, you know, I think it was. I, I think it was probably not so much not being taken seriously, except just not thinking it was. You know, this is a really common issue for women, and actually, ovarian cancer is is such a problem because the symptoms are often vague. I was really lucky that I had pain. Most people just have bloating and kind of gas, and you know, don't generally don't feel well, and that's kind of typical for most women. At least once a month, when we have our period, and so those symptoms tend to come along and we don't really worry too much about them. We think, oh, that's kind of normal par for the course for us. So so often ovarian cancer is not diagnosed until it's at stage three or four. Yeah, I had a uh, ovarian mass that was 11 centimeters and I was completely asymptomatic. 11 centimeters, wow. that is huge, bigger than my liver. And the that's only amazing. symptom I had was that my pants weren't fitting and I was like, oh, yeah. fat. <laughs> so yeah. it wasn't even like a like a bloat anything it was just like a, i'm gaining weight thing and then my doctor's like do you not see it like your right side sticking out further than the left i was like no but anyway so what's different about the and i hope i'm pronouncing this correctly but granulosa cell ovarian cancer is that a genetic ovarian cancer is it running your family how is that different than the more common types of ovarian cancer yeah so um, it's very rare. Only 2% of people get the granulosa cell type. And it is, um, unlike epithelial, which is uh, the most common kind, granulosa cell is, um, is, the, is a type of cancer that's not aggressive. So that's the good news about it. Because it's so rare, they don't really know how to treat it. So that's the bad news about it. And then the other downside of it is that it can keep coming back again and again so what, you know the good news is you have besides so did you have okay you said you had surgery so what kind of surgery did you have and what kind of treatment did you have to follow up with yeah so the the first time and I've had two recurrences since but the first time I had surgery to remove first this what we thought was a cyst and then when they found out it was cancerous they we did another surgery to remove my entire right ovary and then I did six rounds of chemo because they did find some spots in other parts of my abdomen. And then um, after that, I was really cancer-free for four years, but because, again, this is the kind of cancer that they kind of treat as a chronic disease because they told me from the beginning, you're not going to hit that five-year mark and be home-free. Um, this could come back even 30 years later, and so far that's been the case with me. So four years later, I had my first recurrence. At that point, I had a complete hysterectomy. And then about two years after that, last summer, I had another major recurrence. I had several masses in my abdomen. And, you know, they kind of said to me when I had the hysterectomy, we're going to take everything out so we don't have anywhere for the cancer to come back to. And interestingly, the tumors were kind of free-floating in my abdomen. They weren't attached to anything, but it did not stop them from coming back. So last summer I had surgery. They removed a grapefruit-sized tumor and several smaller ones from my abdomen. Tracy, we have you know, a, an ongoing um, conversation here at Super Cancer with how many things can you live without inside your body to prevent <laughs> cancer from happening? And, you know, staring off the things that you need, like limbs, mm -hmm. you know, there's so many yeah. things you can't legitimately live without. And then you go the route yeah. of a saw and you figure <laughs> out how many parts you actually can live without and still be a functioning, you know, uh, like as an animal or a species that can exist. But 
I wanted to talk about, you know, your, your call to arms when I first met you, and it has, it has been unwavering since that day, mm-hmm. is focusing mm-hmm. not just on the specific isolation that young adults with cancer feel, but from a relationship perspective, those who are uniquely single. And yeah. I feel it's a very strong narrative that resonates, highly emotional. It's another thing that, you know, it's hard enough to be single when you're well, let alone being single yeah. when you're sick. And this notion of how your friends and family may be awesome, but you still feel alone. Talk about why that was what resonated with you personally and emotionally and how that has become your serious and most relevant platform to date. Yeah, well, thank you, Matt. I mean, you are one of the first people I really talked to about this. And, and as most people do, when I first talk about, oh, this, the uniqueness of being single with cancer, I start talking about I want to provide services or do something to support the single with cancer crowd, they often misconstrue that and think, oh, you, you want to do a dating service. And so I really have to explain, no, it's really not about that. It's about just feeling alone. You really nailed it. I mean, that's the, the key issue. And and the more I've gone through kind of my journey over the last eight years now, and as I, you know, after my initial conventional treatment, I've gotten much more into alternative, complementary, integrative therapies, and the connections really between our emotions and our health and, and our physical health and well-being. And I've really seen that actually I think the fact that I felt so alone and I saw myself as alone and I kind of operated in the world as this person who is alone was probably a contributing factor actually in my health. And so the more I've gotten to kind of just heal that idea and cancer really helped me heal it, that there's no way I'm alone. You know, my friends and family were incredible people that I didn't even know very well, including you and a lot of other great people in the cancer community just really stepped up to support me. And I learned how to ask for help. I learned how to receive help in a way that I never really had been able to do before. And that was monumental in kind of healing these patterns in my life that weren't serving me, including workaholism and too much stress and not eating very well and not getting enough sleep and being generally just super busy. And when I started healing those things, then I started healing physically as well. And I started taking better care of myself, loving myself enough to eat better than I had been, to get enough sleep, to say no to things, to put myself first. And you, you know, you don't just walk the walk to talk the talk. You have a blog, single cell, you wrote a book, you have another book out. I want to talk about those books. But you actually did a survey, like legitimate surveys. Yeah. And I'm a big survey yeah. wonk. And I'm going to read what you wrote. Out of 100 cancer survivors surveyed, nearly 80% um, reported feeling alone. And 77% cited yeah. connections to other survivors as a top need. So this is legit. And we've done these studies and, and these anecdotal uh, feedback and surveys what, uh, over the years. So you are single. We look at, you know, how far from the perspective of young adult cancer advocacy, where there are so many more resources today, things are so much more interconnected, and there are now conferences and, you know, organizations like First Sense and even the uh, Young Adult Alliance is now Critical Mass. There's, there's a narrative now that doesn't, did not exist seven years ago, and yet people are still feeling isolated. So talk about your book, uh, your efforts, and where you think the, uh, the culture is headed with regard to being single with cancer and ending that isolation. 
Yeah, so it's interesting, Matt. I agree that in the cancer community, we've done a great job of connecting each other better. And just being single in general is becoming more common in our society. You know, there are 100 million single people in this country alone. 31 million of us live alone. So that isolation is not just for those of us who have cancer. It, it can be a societal issue. And again, I feel like that that isolation, that feeling, among many, many other things, can, can actually contribute to our physical issues. So when we can really make those connections in whatever way serves us, then we're going to be better off. You know, some of the ideas I've had for, for just my work are doing, you know, I do a lot of trips and I do a canoe trip every year for, for single survivors, and this year I expanded it really to anyone who wanted to come. People are interested in just healing in general, but also maybe some kind of communal housing situation so that we, a lot of other countries in Europe, they've done this. They've built apartment complexes that single people can still have their own space, but then have this communal time with other people. So we just can feel more connected as a society because this is not just an issue in the cancer community. Another part of your survey you talk about uh, with us, single survivors, you all say that half of participants cited that romantic partners barely acknowledged that they were going through cancer and they weren't a major source of support. So it's kind of like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you're in a relationship, your partner's not supportive, and if you're single, you tend to feel lonely. So what have you found, you know, just from people who were dating or married or whatever, I know my oncologist says that divorce is very common and sees it all the time with her patients, but, you know, what were you finding when you were doing this survey? Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of studies actually on single people and, and cancer specifically. And, you know, some of them have been debunked because they because of their methodology or whatever, but and some of the headlines are alarming. You know, they say things like being single is bad for your health and you're more likely to die and and so I do cite some of those studies in my book, and I talk about um, kind of it's really not about being married. It's really about the level of support that you have from your community. So um, if you're single, yes, usually outcomes, especially for men, tend to not be as good. And there are several theories about why that's the case, that you know, your wife is going to nag you to go to the doctor and to, to take your medicine and to stay on your treatment and do the things that you need to do for your health. and. And, you know, that may or may not be true, but even married women tend to get more support sometimes from their friends than their partner. Now, of course, there are a lot of really supportive, loving, amazing relationships out there, but for all of those, there also are several cases of, um, I see kind of two different things. Either people, sometimes partners get freaked out and they can't handle it. It feels like too much when their partner gets sick and so they leave. And other times the person who is sick says life is too short to stay in this horrible relationship one more minute and they leave. And so it kind of happens from both sides. And I think single people are likely to have just as good of outcomes as long as they find a way to connect with other people, ask for help, receive the help graciously, and really allow themselves to be vulnerable in sharing what it is they need. And that was one of the hardest things for me is just getting clear on what is it that I need? And I provide some specific exercises in the book to really help people kind of go through that process of who's my community, who can I ask, and what is it that I'm going to ask for? Tracy, you are online at imtracymaxwell.com, and the book is Being Single with Cancer, 
you're having a bunch of fall book signing events, and <clears throat> you have a, an organization called Solo Survivors. We've only got about three minutes left on the, uh, the interview here, but I wanted you to focus more on specifically people getting involved, what can single people with cancer do, how can they learn more about working with you or connecting with you, and what are some of the resources you recommend uh, around giving them this sense of community? Thank you, Matt. Well, obviously, you know, I recommend the book. It's been out for two weeks, so it's brand new. I am doing a couple of book signing events in Denver. I've got one planned for Nashville. I'd love to come to other cities if people are interested in, you know, working with their local bookstore and bringing me. That would be great. The book is really kind of laid out in three sections. The first one is about diagnosis and treatment, really helping people see that they're not alone, that they do have options. And really important is that they're responsible for their treatment and for their life and and they really have to take responsibility for that. The second part is about survivorship. Okay, what happens now? I'm a survivor. Understanding our own worthiness, and I kind of already mentioned loving yourself. And then the third part is about kind of living beyond cancer. Okay, well, once all this thing is over, how can we make sense of the experience that we had? And for some people, it's never over. You know, people with stage 4 disease, that is a totally different experience, and I share some stories in my book about that, but just getting the inspiration to continue with their life, the motivation to keep doing what they're doing, the power that they have, how, really recognizing how much they are already loved because those of us that feel alone sometimes don't feel that way, and then just getting their connection to spirit that can really be such a source of support in their lives. You know, like I said before, I do, I'm leading these fun trips and adventures. I'm taking a group to Hawaii in November. If anyone is interested in going to Hawaii, um, it's everything that I do has a healing focus, and in Hawaii we're going to be focusing on healing at such a healing place, has such a healing energy. I mentioned the canoe trip that I do every year. It's really amazing. And I'm also helping coach people who are maybe newly diagnosed or not sure how to navigate this alone or not sure where their sources of support are. So there are a lot of different ways people can get involved, as you mentioned, the blog and several other things on the website. There are great resources. So please do check out the website, and I would love to connect with you. We also do have a Facebook page at Solo Survivors uh, on Facebook, so come join the discussion there. And, um, you know, thank you for letting me talk about something that's really special and important to me. All right, we've been speaking with Tracy Maxwell, young adult survivor of ovarian cancer, um, one of the leading gurus on being single with cancer. She is at I am Tracy Maxwell. Tracy, thank you so much. We'll see you real soon. Thank you. Thanks, guys. See you in Denver. All right, Kenny, let's hit up the news here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All right, Matt, head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods. We certainly don't want you missing out. Whoa. Uh, we have a couple of events coming up in New York, New York, San Antonio, Texas, Solana Beach, California, and San Francisco, California. That's pretty good. Yeah. All right, Reggie. Yeah, we got our, our, our East Coast uh, conference coming up here, OMG East. Registration is full, but we encourage you to learn more about what it is at omgeast.org, and we uh, hope to have a bigger venue next year. But look, look, uh, looking forward to having an amazing conference with Italia Ricci as our special guest. 
and uh, some really great workshops. 225 people, one room, Stupid Cancer. All right, it's always a good time to stock up on your Stupid Cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and cool with all new products and styles to choose from. We've got a bunch of hoodies uh, for sale. We've got our awesome skateboard. And don't forget about Flip, the Cancer Bird, our latest plushie mascot at stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And finally, cancer is lonely, period. We just discussed that in our first segment. We've got the cure for cancer isolation. It's called Instapeer, our forthcoming free mobile app that will bring instant anonymous peer support to anyone affected by cancer. Visit instapeer.org, watch our video, learn more about the project, and consider making an online tax-deductible donation so you can be a part of history. That's instapeer.org. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right, time for the big guns. Dr. Ronnie Zeiger is the former chief health strategist at Google and co-founder of SmartPatients.com. He believes that if we respect each other enough and strive to understand the ways each of us is an expert, we can make better science happen faster. That was deep. That was very deep. Very deep. Oh, deep burn. Deep burn. Please welcome Dr. Ronnie Zeiger. Ronnie. Oh, please, please. That's, w that's way too much applause. <laughs> we are really thrilled to have you on the show, kicking off season 15. You are a real leader in your field, and I think you bring so much, I guess, disruption and candor to what it is to be an MD, practicing, non-practicing, dis uh, disenfranchised, revolutionary. And uh, we go back a very long time, back when I was invited to join the prestigious school of health advisory board, but let's, let's take a few steps back. How did you get into medicine? What drove you to serve the Hippocratic Oath? And uh, again, what, then what drove you to be disrupted by it and uh, changing the world a little bit? So I'm going to try extra hard to behave today um, uh, so that people realize how serious this show is. Um, if, I were, if, I were with you, if I were with you in person, you know that would be different. Hopefully next time um, I'll be in your studio. So, so my, my path is, I guess, a little bit of a weird one. I, I was a science nerd and ended up going into medicine uh, because, I, I honestly, it was kind of lonely working in the lab with frogs and, and other less, less than human things. And, um, and I, was, I was actually working as a, as a translator in a clinic. Um, I grew up speaking Spanish and English um, because my family's from South America. And I realized, wow, that's so cool. You can do science and people at the same time. And um, so that, that's how I ended up going down the, the medicine path. And, and um, I guess I've, I've been kind of distracted along the way because I keep on doing things about medicine um, almost more than sort of the traditional, traditional practice of medicine. So what then, uh, how did you get involved with Google? That's pretty prestigious, the uh, chief health strategist. Yeah, um, sure, sure sounds fancy. Uh, I, I was, um, I had actually gone back to school after practicing full-time for a couple of years um, to, to get some, some training in how computers really work. I was sort of a hacker before that. Um, but I, but I wanted to understand. I wanted to get some background so that I could really start to build things um, with software that, that I saw starting to to have a big impact and saw the bigger, even bigger impact that that computing can have in medicine. And um, while I initially was 
um, pretty self-centered and was building things for, for myself and, and for my fellow medical students and, and trainees and, and then doctors, um, I, I kind of accidentally did some projects when I, when I went back to school that made me wonder, what about building tools directly for patients? Um, almost, almost the question of, you know, can we take out the middleman a little bit here? Um, in terms from an education perspective and, and build more tools that patients can access themselves. And, um, and I was living in the Bay Area and I, it, it honestly just occurred to me, you know, I wonder if, if Google would want to hire someone like me to help them do more stuff in health. And um, I kind of knocked on the door there and they were foolish enough to listen. And, and next thing you know, um, I was working there. So, and what did you find, Google being revolutionary? My um, memories of that time where they were trying to truly revolutionize the way in which patients engaged with industry by having everyone put all their medical information into a Google, which I guess maybe rhetorically might be a decent idea, but it didn't quite work out, but it kind of gave birth to this entire industry of brilliant young minds trying to change the way patients engage with the industry, with doctors, and with each other. And you were right along that path, correct? Yeah, I think so. When I, I got to spend six years at Google, and, and we worked on a, a bunch of different things. The, the specific project that you're referring to was the personal health record project, known as Google Health. And a uh, great idea, um, uh, but didn't turn out to be that important. And, and some of that may have been execution. I think a lot of that was that we didn't really understand what problems we were, were most important to solve. And while access to information, including one's own health information, can be really important, um, I don't think those are the first, the first problems that we should be trying to solve. I, I you know, during my time, um, time at Google, I got to spend even more um, effort and, and resources thinking about something in a way that's much simpler, um, and that is, given that a crazy number of people put health questions into the Google search box every day, um, you know, what, should, what should we do to make that work a lot better? And a, a tiny example, you know, there's really sophisticated things we can do, like, like try to understand uh, if someone seems to be looking for the potential causes of a given symptom. Um, and that's a, that's a really interesting and, and challenging problem that, that, that uh, we spend some time thinking about. Um, but then there's even, there's even a, a trivial things like, um, and this was actually suggested to us by, by a mom who wrote in a note after um, she had a, the scare of her life when she thought her daughter had swallowed something poisonous. Daughter turned out to be fine. But that led us to do something um, super easy, which is if you type in, um, you know, like poison control phone number or several related searches, you now get a red phone at the top of the page with uh, the national hotline for whether it's poison control or suicide prevention or a couple of other things. So sometimes, sometimes the, the simplest things are, are the most impactful, um, especially when we boil it down to what do regular people who are suffering really think about and need, as opposed to what do we experts think we ought to invent. And, and that's, that, that frame shift, I think, is a, is a subtle and important one. Well, I doctor Google myself pretty much every single day, like symptom, and then I'll say pain or whatever, and then it all pops up that I'm about to, you know, kick it. So you are, you know, you have a doctor's background. Our healthcare system is, 
kind of a mess right now. So what do you think are the biggest gaps that we're facing that you're trying to fix? Well, you know, I, I think that for almost every problem that, that we can think about in the healthcare system, um, or, or at least a bunch of the big ones, um, I think there's this massive resource that most of us overlook most of the time, and, and that's the fact that there's a bunch of really smart people who are learning about things and who are very interested in helping each other and teaching each other. This whole notion of the empowered patient is, you know, it's, it's almost becoming cliche, um, so maybe we need new, new terms that don't have as much baggage associated with them, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in what networked people can do. So not just when, when there's one person who's spending a lot of time on Google or wherever else they're searching and, and gathering information, but what happens when you get a bunch of those people together and they can teach each other, they can um, suggest mistakes that each of them are making, um, they can share experiences, they can advise each other on the most important questions they should ask their doctor at the next visit. So when you start to, you know, I have, I'm actually not a big fan of the word crowd, crowdsourcing because it kind of implies like, um, let's just take the average of what everyone says and, and kind of dilute people's intelligence. But, but if we actually, but, but a well-functioning community, and, and I mean the term in very general term, in, in a very general sense, a group of people that, that, wants, to, um, that, that wants to collaborate in different ways, um, a, a, a well-functioning community can actually, um, I think, do an incredible job of helping to solve problems in health, whether that problem is, um, how to figure out the most appropriate treatment for somebody that really fits with their, with their expectations and their lifestyle, or how to decide what science we should invest in next, you know, across the board from, from discovering new stuff to, to figuring out how to deliver it once we think we know what we're doing. We still think of, we still, I think most of us think of patients as, as passive recipients of care and passive participants in clinical trials. And not only is that arguably disrespectful, I think it's, I think it's um, just a huge omission in terms of, in terms of failing to, to make use of this massive resource that is increasingly equipped to, to be a collaborator. Rana, you've um, raised a lot of eyebrows by actually making that point over and over again that patients matter. And you had spoken at the OMG Cancer Summit in Las Vegas earlier this year, and you gave an amazing presentation about a simple concept like the prescription pill bottle. And my question is, I'd love you to recant that narrative, but this issue of patients are not doctors, but they have a value to doctors, what is the biggest barrier for the medical community to build systems that meaningfully integrate the patient voice beyond just, oh, we think that you should put this up on Google when I type poison control. Well, you know, I think part of the challenge is even in, even in the way that you phrase that question. Um, so, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm not shy about taking you in particular to task, Matthew Zachary. And, yes, sir. And, you, Literally. And, you, and you said, you said, um, patients aren't doctors, but they can be useful to doctors. That's totally backwards. Doctors aren't necessarily patients, but they can be useful to patients. What's useful to patients is the question we need to be asking, not, not what's useful to doctors. So um, if we think about the um, – let's talk about caregivers for a moment. Uh, so let's say that – let's say I'll, I'll play the role of doctor, 
and, and I'm, seeing, I'm seeing a patient, and we're trying to figure out, let's say that this patient is someone who's struggling with, um, with diabetes, uh, and we're trying to figure out how can we make it easier for you to control your blood sugar. And by the way, there are these drugs, and we're pretty sure they'll, they'll work for you, but you're having a hard time taking them. And, you know, we might put, put a label of non-compliant or non-adherent on them, which probably isn't too productive, but, but may, may be convenient for, for bookkeeping purposes. But the question isn't, you know, how do we re-lecture this person? I think the question is, in what way is this medication failing this person? Um, not, not, how is this, not how is this patient failing the doctor or failing the system, but in what way is this medication not working in the patient's context? What's happening during the 29 days of the month or, or the 89 days of the quarter that the patient isn't in the office? How, how can we study that? And, and how can we improve that? And of course, and, and so the caregiver, um, which may be the, the spouse or a parent or a child, depending on, on the situation, you know, we should, we should be spending a lot more time thinking about, so how can we tap into this person's family community, and, and specifically a, a caregiver if there, if there is a, a primary one, um, to, deep, to more deeply understand the way in which this prescription, this advice that the doctor has given, isn't working. And, and the framing of how, is, how are things working or not working for the patient in their context, within their family, among their caregivers, um, is something that I think we need to do a lot better job of from the first day of, of medical school as opposed to here's the treatment that works, here's the noncompliance rate, et cetera. So before the show and to prepare for the show, I went on your website, smartpatients.com. I created a profile for myself. And um, it's very easy to use for listeners out there who are interested in learning more. But what I did is I searched the type of uh, cancer I have, and I have metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And a lot of what came up was information about clinical trials. And um, I've met with some doctors about clinical trials, but I understand that not everybody's doctors will point them in that direction. So what was the purpose of setting up the site? And was that what you wanted to get out of it was to expose people to these alternatives? So, so that's something that we've ended up doing a lot of work on. The reason is, so, so we have, partly because um, this Smart Patients really grew out of, um, of ACOR, um, which some, some of you may know about. Um, ACOR is a, is a collection of listservs that was started in the mid-90s by Gilles Friedman, who's, who's the other founder of Smart Patients along with me. And, um, and that's, it's, a, that's a, it's a cancer-focused set of communities. And, and in many ways, Smart Patients is kind of like version two, the web-based version using all the tools that now exist that didn't exist 20 years ago um, for communities. And one of the things, when we built the first versions of Smart Patients a couple of years ago and started getting um, the cancer patients that we already had relationships with to, to test it and tell us what they liked and what they didn't like, um, a really consistent piece of feedback was, look, um, this, is, this is a good version one, uh, but you're missing something really important. We spend a lot of time looking for clinical trials, not because we want to, but because we have to. Part of the reason many of us are here is because we've already tried the one or two or three approved therapies and they're not working anymore. So we have to look at other options, including in clinical trials. So could you guys do something that would make that easier for us instead of making us go to clinicaltrials.gov, which is a really important kind of the canonical resource, but from a user experience perspective, it sucks. And so we eventually uh, listened to that guidance from the community and built um, kind of our own mashup of clinicaltrials.gov. Um, not so much 
to build a, another place to search for trials, but to, to make it easy for someone to find a trial and start a conversation about it, because that's what they told us they really wanted to do. And, and so we don't really have a kind of a mandate to, to make more people aware about trials. Um, but we're doing that as, as in particular in response to the feedback from our cancer communities um, that for those who do want to do that, it's easy and, and there is probably a disproportionate amount of discussion about clinical trials um, on smart patients than you might find elsewhere just because I guess it's a little bit of a nerdy community from a science perspective and, and uh, a lot of people have those interests and so there's a lot of newbies that learn from the folks who are more savvy about it. There's a lot of discussion um, about a lot of people who are who are looking for a trial or considering a trial that was recommended to them and want to know what experience others have had to help them figure out what's going to be the best fit for them. Really, the, the bottom line, um, I think the most important, one of the most important things that I've learned in, in the few years that I've gotten to work with these communities, um, especially in the, in the cancer community, is that um, while researchers think about trials as experiments, uh, patients think about trials as treatment options. Treatment options with a bunch of baggage um, partly because they're set up as experiments, but that, but there's a real disconnect there, and I think that disconnect is one of the reasons there maybe hasn't been, um, we don't see as many really sort of patient-friendly tools um, to, to learn about trials as, as, as I would like, and, and hopefully we're making a little bit of progress there. And, and you guys monitor all the posts. I noticed that you guys weigh in if people are asking questions. So do you have a specific administrator or do you guys all kind of pitch in to answer questions or to clarify things? Because I know one of the problems, at least I've seen in message boards and things like that, is it can be misinformation or people talking about just healing holistically, stopping chemotherapy, and while that is their choice, it's, it's whatever. But so how do you guys go about policing what ends up on the site and on, on these uh, message boards with the topics, especially, especially regarding cancer? Yeah, so um, it's a really um, complex and evolving approach. So um, one thing I want to clarify is that we're not domain experts. I mean, I happen to be a clinician. I happen to be a, a physician, although I'm not an oncologist. I have no oncology training. And really, in smart patients, I don't wear my, my doctor hat. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a product developer. I'm a software guy. Um, and, and so what we're doing is... I mean, we understand enough of the health context to to build the right tools, but we're not we're not the police, we're not the the, the domain experts. Um, what we do is, but we do have we do have a lot of ways of, of nurturing communities, and and we and we do so from from their very beginning, so that there is a there's a culture um, uh, that's. That's, that we discuss a lot with especially the earliest members of the given community where, where the expectation is that, um, that science wins. So when there is science to back something up or to refute it, um, that wins. Unfortunately, in many cases there isn't, and all we have is, is people's anecdotes and their guesswork. Um, but when someone says something, for example, about um, uh, you know, something that many of us probably would consider um, a, an unproven, arguably even dangerous sounding therapy, um, uh, what you'll see is not someone on our team that says, hey, wait a second, that's not okay. Um, what you're more likely to see is someone else in the community saying, 
first, so let's say someone posts something like that, and it's, it's maybe the first time they've said something. What you're most likely to see is, is someone who's been around in the community for a while say, first of all, welcome, you're not alone. And secondly, do you have any data to back up what you just said? Um, here's, for example, a pointer to a paper that I saw that seems to refute what you said. Maybe you're aware of something new. And so respectfully challenging people um, to back up what they say with evidence if it seems something that some, like something is potentially problematic, um, in our view, is in, in the long term more effective than trying to, quote unquote, keep out all the bad stuff. Um, because uh, first of all, there's a lot of subjectivity um, in terms of what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. But second of all, it's probably better to have the community explicitly hear about and think about something controversial or even incorrect rather than um, pretend that we can build a system that will always filter out, uh, filter things out. Now, all that said, we do have rules about what is and isn't appropriate, and um, and we do enforce those rules. So, so it's not it's not quite as um, sort of uh, idealistic as as I just suggested. Um, but but it, it it is more like that. It's more community um, monitored than it is policed by a set of of um, sort of expert administrators. So what would you say are some of the positives over the last couple of years? What are, I mean, you're pioneering an incredible space that only exists today because of the momentum that's driven it on the consumer side. Are there any real success stories or success models, companies, integration, something that people can turn to today and say, wow, this is making a difference, filling all the gaps that are not working right now? Gosh, uh, that's a sobering question because not a lot comes to mind. Um, but I think that's because we're kind of in the middle of a lot of it, and we probably don't don't appreciate um, appreciate it since things things move so much slower than many of us are um, sort of willing to deal with. <laughs> willing to, it's, it's hard to be relaxed about the pace, the slow pace of evolution in such an important space. Um, but I think I think the fact that um, the fact that we're having conversations like this, not just on a, sort of a bleeding edge show like yours, and I barely even mean that as a compliment, so please don't get all mushy, um, but the, the fact that there are conversations among um, thought leaders and executives at every kind of company um, in the healthcare space, whether it's a hospital or a community clinic or a pharmaceutical company or an insurance company, um, I think we're right now transitioning from people talking about patient-centeredness as a marketing tactic to, wait a second, we should actually do something here because it would be useful. So um, uh, I would say, I would say the, the, a positive sign, and I won't, I won't applaud too, too loud about, about you know, I, I don't think we can pat ourselves on the back too much here, but a positive sign is that, you know, universe, academic medical centers that are pretty conservative all the way to, um, Pharma, which in many ways is also extremely conservative, are, are putting um, their you know, real resources and bandwidth and, and their, their internal um, thought leaders um, ver are very explicitly looking at um, how do we involve patients more explicitly in everything that we do and how do we innovate to the point where we're even making ourselves uncomfortable because, because if we don't, um, disruption is going to bite us in the butt. 
And so I think, I think it feels all of a sudden not, not like that we've made a lot of progress, but it seems like the, the ground is extremely fertile compared to where it was five or ten years ago. No, and I, I couldn't agree more. I would also argue that we look at some of the systems in play that exist today, something as simple as ZocDoc, which doesn't necessarily maybe teach doctors what patients want to talk about, but it builds another level of connectivity between them to make it a little easier to have that conversation. Is, would you agree with that? Is that a step in the right direction, something as simple as ZocDoc? Yeah, or, or even Yelp, which, which is doing the same thing in a less, um, in a less intentional manner. Um, the fact that you know, clinicians, whether they're doctors or dentists or otherwise, have to think about what are patients thinking and talking about. Now, probably in the case of Yelp, it's a more cynical discussion around, you know, God, the squeaky wheel is making us look bad or, or what have you. Um, in the case of ZocDoc, they're, they're more they're, they have a more sophisticated approach and are focusing on healthcare and really thinking about um, lowering, you know, taking some of the friction away um, from, from getting a doctor's appointment and building things around that. Um, we're, you know, it's, it's like all of a sudden healthcare is arriving into, um, you know, the, the modern internet-enabled world. And, uh, you know, we still live in a place where, you know, it's probably, you know, certainly a double-digit percentage of physicians today who still kind of wish their, their patients weren't online because it's more trouble um, for them than they think it's helpful. But that's changing quickly. And, um, you know, we're now seeing medical schools who are, teaching their medical students from, you know, the first year of medical school about the role of social media in healthcare. And, you know, that's, you know, that's a new concept and, is, and is, is going to become a central part of the culture of medicine for people who are getting trained now. And do you think that patients and people, caregivers, whoever, should be able to post detailed reviews of their doctors and then give them, like, a star rating? and? based on their experiences? So I think that's certainly okay. Um, I, I'm not, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have clarity on how good of an idea that is. I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with it, and I, and I think it's, uh, it's you know, probably a free speech kind of thing that I wouldn't want um, try to try to limit. Um, I would want to, you know, to the extent that I'm in charge of things, I would want to take a step back and say, what problem are we trying to solve and what are the best ways we can solve it? So let me give you an example. Um, something for which data exists today that it really isn't accessible to any of us um, that I wish I could have is I want to know, um, I, I don't, I'm not really that interested in someone's, in a doctor's kind of Yelp-style reviews. That's just my, that's me as a, as a person. I would like to know, um, show me the breakdown of the kinds of patients a given doctor seeks. So if I'm trying to help a loved one get a new primary care doctor and that loved one's main problem is that they have arthritis, um, they have, let's say, you know, osteoarthritis, that's the kind of, kind of common kind of arthritis, um, I just want to see, compared to average, say, internists, what percentage of this doctor's panel has arthritis? This is like a not controversial, this isn't, you know, who thinks this doctor is really good and are they really talking about bedside manner or are they talking about how, how smart he or she is. Um, instead, I, I just want to know, no, give me this piece of data. How much exposure, how much time compared to other docs does this doc spend thinking about arthritis? I think those are, are some really straightforward things. Things like that are really straightforward things we can do, which I suspect will move the quality needle more than something like 
online reviews, and of course those two things are mutually exclusive. So we are uh, pretty much out of time, but I did want to ask you more of a meta-level question that doesn't need a specific answer, but the relationship that patients have with doctors and that what providers have with patients is a, we like to use the term user-centered. Who's the user? And obviously the patient is the user and the doctor is the product. Right? You really want to just reverse engineer humanity in a sense. So what ha- like the principles of user-centered design are like the river, you know, uh, determines its own path. You can't like, you know, dig the trench and make the river go where it wants to. How does that act? Pen in Dubai. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> or the Panama Canal, perhaps. But how can, like, industry really learn from that? And have they learned from that? And are we better off now than we were a few years ago? So I think we're, like, a quarter of a percent better off. And there's so much low-hanging fruit here. So, you know, kind of the, the Silicon Valley... Um, user-centered design principles, which of course exist in many other places, but since I live in Silicon Valley, I'll pretend it started here, is um, you think you've got a problem that's worth solving. You think you understand something about the direction to go, but before going too far, find real people who really have this problem and have them tell you what you think. And then you build something really simple by hand that doesn't scale and it's not going to make any money and and it's just actually a paper prototype and you put it in front of them and you ask them, okay, are we we, we on the right track? So it's a very iterative process um, that involves the person whose problem you're trying to solve from the beginning. And I think healthcare is probably the least good industry I've ever, um, I've ever thought about uh, in terms of being user-centered. I mean, we, we design clinical trials, we build hospitals, um, we create clinical guidelines, we do all these things, put huge amounts of resources, and we only really let the user know at the very end, hey, this is the answer, this, here's the address of the hospital, this is what the waiting room looks like, here's what this, how this clinical trial is going to go, and if you want, you can participate in it. If you want, here's where the office is. I guess you could choose a different doctor if you don't like it. You may or may not have a choice. But in almost all the things that we build in healthcare, all of the products, whether you're talking about a doctor's office or the doctor's way of practicing or a drug and the shape of the pill and what the clinical trial experience is like, all these things, we build them with almost no regard for what the end user, for what the patient thinks about them. We, we have an extremely expert-centric system, and that's kind of understandable given where, where we've come from, um, but I think it's starting to become unforgivable given how easy it is for us to do a better job in this way. Right, and I am hopeful that that quarter of a percent turns into maybe a half a percent, <laughs> you know, with some of the efforts we're, we're trying to, uh, you know, push forward here at Stupid Cancer. I could tell you that, as, as you know, you were a former board member here and maintain a relationship as an advisor is, you know, we're a very feisty patient community. We are demanding change, and we are demanding change from our provider communities as well. So I'm optimistic that that quarter percent will turn into at least maybe half a percent or slightly towards half a percent uh, by CancerCon with, uh, you know, continued support from you and others like you kind of paving the way. Well, I, so, I, I, I want to make it a small addendum. I think stupid cancer is not only feisty, it is spicy, and I think that we can aim for at least 1%. Okay, that's our goal, 1%. Move the needle. Kenny, you're on it, right? Uh, needle moved. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Roddy Zeiger, former chief health strategist at Google and co-founder of SmartPatients.com. Thank you, my good doctor, for joining us tonight. Huge pleasure. Go forth Thank with longevity. All righty, Roddy Zeiger, everyone.
it is quite fascinating to, and, and I'm, I've experienced this firsthand at, at tons of conferences where I'm the patient in the room. I wasn't invited to be there as a patient, but I'm the patient in the room. And I, I just want to leave with one anecdote where I'm on the board of a group called PCORI, which is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Say that 20 times fast while drunk. PCORI is an academic community of people trying to figure out how to laypersonize the process for patients to integrate better into the system. Something as simple as going on a clinical trial is like taking out a home mortgage. Mm -hmm. because it, and you've been on them, so you know. Well, I've tried, but yes. They give you a huge stack of papers that has a lot of legal talk, government talk, right, and medical talk, and it's and it, you have to sign disclaimers. Participating in this trial may result in death. Right. Initial here, and you're like, okay. Right. And uh, the one thing I will say that's interesting that we didn't get into is. And I've noticed this change even since I was first diagnosed, and that was only two and a half years ago, is more cancer centers and hospitals are offering people to be able to log in to, like, I think the one at, uh, well, I know at MD Anderson, it's called My MD Anderson, and then there's one at NYU Langone that I use, and you get access to your reports. And that's good and it's bad because sometimes you don't know what that you don't know what these numbers mean or you don't and it can cause you to panic not because i you know had had that happen to myself <laughs> but you know you don't like alkaline phosphate measures liver so i look at my liver numbers and i'm like oh my god it's ticking up and then i go that then i'm like sweating and texting people who have liver mass i'm like what does this number mean and then telling my doctor like why is this liver number going so that number means nothing and then she's like, you're stressing yourself out for no reason. But then, but then on the, on the other hand, I went to a cancer center, had a scan. They never called me, and I had pro major progression, and they never told anybody. And that's how I found out. So I had logged in, and I read my own radiology report. So it's like good and bad because not, you know, if you're seeing a new doctor, you don't always know who you can trust. Right. Well, my experience with PCORI was there were. I was invited there not as a patient. I was invited there as a patient advocate. Mm -hmm. And we're in a room discussing, you know, something as simple as rhetorically, how to improve the clinical trial, you know, process of signing all these papers mm -hmm. and, what, and managing pain scales mm -hmm. and reporting back. And the problem is everyone doing this is really, really smart, well above the general right. IQ of the public. And there's nothing wrong with the bell curve. But when you're delivering all of this academia, and med speak down to the average person with an average IQ or normal IQ, not even average, just normal, mm -hmm. a normal human being in this country, it, it doesn't make sense. I, I, and I'm, I just, I'll end with, I wrote a new article for PM360, Pharma Market of 360, called It's Your Risk, Stupid. And I kind of jab at that process because it's almost like when you go to Disney World, a great adventure, or SeaWorld, and by buying your ticket, you are indemnifying the park if you die on their rides. Mm -hmm. So we should get Great Adventure to invent some version of the clinical trial <laughs> screening or whatever, where just by buying the ticket to the clinical ride umbrella, you are, you know, indemnified if you die. And that's it. And the ticket. That and also another thing I'll add, because I've been on the side of searching through clinical trials a few times now, and 
they're never up the government never updates that website. No. So you look at the site and it'll say enrolling and I'll email my doctor like a link of like five different trials in New York City that I think I could qualify for and then she's like, Oh well actually like three of those or two of those are closed and a lot of other a lot of them are confusing because there's different arms to it and people don't understand like maybe what a placebo is and they're freaking out, like, Oh my god, if I get placebo and Ethically, they can't give you nothing. You always get something, but um, it, it, it's very confusing. There's a lot of terms that are over people's heads, and I'm even, and they leave out a lot of details. Like I remember, it left out the dosage of the medication because I wasn't going to be. Oh, that's not important. <laughs> I was going I was supposed to be at a trial that was measuring side effects of a certain dosage, and I try. It wasn't in any of the paperwork. I tried calling the doc, the, the doctor's office like three times. I was like, can you tell me the dosage of this medication before I sign up for this trial? Because I'd really rather not be in a trial that's like, we're going to max you out and see if you drop dead. And that's basically what the trials say. Right. And when you dumb it down, that's basically what they're saying. Like, you might die from this, but that's what we're trying to figure out. And I like what Ronnie pointed out about how, you know, the academic world considers it experimental, but for us it's a treatment option. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The general public do not understand. And I try to remember, like, I used to be that person. The general public do not understand clinical trials. I think clinical trials is like In your Hail Mary. Experiments and yeah. yeah, your Hail Mary. Sometimes it's the right. best treatment that's out there, and these drugs are, like, months or less than a year away from FDA approval. Right. Anyway. To be continued. Indeed. All right, folks. That's tonight's show, and now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepared to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray! I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo! You got it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 319th broadcast. Let me see if I can do this. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Are you high tonight? <laughs> no, I was just trying to make sure that I did not mess it up. Good luck with that. Yes, I've been doing drugs over here in the corner. All right. We'd like to thank our guests, Tracy Maxwell, Ronnie Zogger, next week's show, episode 320. It's Everything Awareness Month, September which means it's Cancer Awareness Month for pretty much everything except breast cancer, childhood cancer, gynecologic cancer, leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, ovarian, prostate, and thyroid cancer all share the spotlight for September. Join us next Monday as we welcome young adult cervical cancer survivor Cindy Felder and young adult ovarian survivor Lauren Horn to share their stories to Barbara Spotlight on Marianne Stevens. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes Podcasts, and on Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime online at stupidcancer.org and the brand new stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, Mallory Rivera, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next Monday live at 8 p.m. Good night, folks. <laughs>